Good morning. In today's headlines, Israel's military watching for threats along its borders as the war against terrorist group Hamas enters its 25th day. And good news about an Israeli soldier hostage. U.S. officials outline humanitarian aid and civilian casualties in the Gaza Strip. They also highlight Hamas using people as human shields and other concerns. More anti-Semitic events in 2023 than in decades. Find out why the White House says we can't just stand by and how the governor of New York has responded to graphic threats at a university. Former President Trump's appearance on the 2024 Colorado ballot challenged, citing the 14th Amendment. A legal practitioner unpacks the court battle. The National Archives has found 82,000 pages of emails used under President Biden's pseudonyms. Find out more on the steps taken under a FOIA lawsuit. We have a special report exposing the Chinese Communist Party's censorship in the free world. How a New York-based arts group has faced oppression in an American-allied country for almost two decades. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning, everyone. I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Tuesday, October 31st. And you know, Evelyn, Hamas terrorists have really put Israel in a tough position, whether to yield to calls and leverage a ceasefire to get hostages out or press on with their goal to eradicate Hamas to make sure this doesn't happen again. Right. Well, but it seems like Israel is pretty clear on which they se- decision they've made. So... And our top news today is related. The war between Israel and Hamas is now on its 25th day. The hostage situation in the Middle East has taken a turn. In a video, a hostage is seen pleading for help, directly addressing Israel's prime minister. His response is decisive, signaling Hamas's atta- tactics won't work. Entity's Jason Perry has the latest. And a warning, this report contains footage that some viewers might find disturbing. On Monday, Hamas terrorists released a chilling video of three hostages. The woman in the middle addressed her message to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Netanyahu later addressed the situation. I want to make clear Israel's position regarding a ceasefire. Just as the United States would not agree to a ceasefire after the bombing of Pearl Harbor or after the terrorist attack of 9-11, Israel will not agree to a cessation of hostilities with Hamas after the horrific attacks of October 7th. Calls for a ceasefire are calls for Israel to surrender to Hamas, to surrender to terrorism, to surrender to barbarism. That will not happen. Netanyahu also released a statement on X saying the video is cruel psychological propaganda. But a grandson of a hostage in Hamas captivity sees the video in a positive light. It gives us a lot of hope to see that they're still alive. Um, We haven't given up on them yet. We know they're alive and we're going to do anything we can 
to bring them back. He stood in front of more than 200 empty beds set up to symbolize the men, women and children held captive by Hamas. Many of them were taken hostage during a surprise attack in which Hamas terrorists murdered over 1,400 innocent civilians in Israel. Since then, Israel has vowed to defeat the Hamas terrorist group to ensure such an attack will never happen again. Also on Monday, the Israeli military released footage of its recent ground operations. Israeli Defense Forces spokesperson Daniel Hagari explained part of their strategy. We move on the ground, identify the terrorists, and attack from the air. Ground forces are also directly engaging terrorists. The fighting is being carried out in the Gaza Strip. And he further explained that their ground operations also aim to free the hostages and return them home. On Monday, Israel said its forces rescued an Israeli soldier from Hamas captivity during the ground offensive. She was captured back in Israel on October 7th. And since being free, she has undergone medical checks and is doing well. Jason Perry, NTD News. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said Monday that the U.S. is seeking to boost the delivery of humanitarian aid to the Gaza Strip. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on that and the latest on the U.S. response to the war in Israel. NSC spokesman John Kirby says that although aid has gone up, the volume needs to be increased significantly. Kirby also discussed civilian casualties in Gaza, acknowledging there have been thousands of them. But he says Israel is striving to avoid them. But unlike Putin in Ukraine, and unlike what Hamas did on October 7th, killing civilians is not a war aim of the Israeli Defense Forces. Their war aim is to go after Hamas terrorists. Uh, terrorists, I might add, terrorists, I might add, that are using innocent Palestinians as human shields. Kirby also discussed Israel's campaign to uproot the Hamas terror group. You can decapitate a terrorist organization. You can decimate their capabilities. You can render them a lot less effective. Kirby says such moves may not remove the ideology that allows the terror organization to recruit and get funding. But look at ISIS right now. It's a shadow of itself. Remember, they were storming across Iraq and Syria with this big caliphate that they wanted to govern. Back to Gaza aid, State Department spokesman Matthew Miller said 45 trucks carrying food, water and other humanitarian aid moved through the Rafah crossing into the enclave on Sunday. That's the highest single-day shipment to date. Miller says the U.S. is also making progress on ensuring the delivery of fuel supplies. I should note that even as we work to provide fuel for these essential humanitarian services, Hamas continues to maintain extensive fuel reserves. Rather than provide that fuel to hospitals or aid workers or for other civilian needs, however, it continues to hoard it for the benefit of its fighters and to carry out its terrorist attacks against Israel. On hostages, Miller says the U.S. will continue to work at the highest levels to secure the release of every hostage held by Hamas and the safe passage of those American citizens in Gaza who want to leave. Miller also commented on efforts to evacuate Americans stranded in Israel saying the last planned charter flight will leave Tuesday from Tel Aviv. Purely a demand issue. We had a charter flight leave yesterday that had five people on it. Uh, we have consistently seen the demand for our charter flights go down. The U.S. government began chartering flights from Tel Aviv to Athens on October 13th to help Americans depart Israel amid the ongoing conflict in the region. 
Turning to funding, House Republicans on Monday introduced a plan to provide over $14 billion in aid to Israel by cutting funding for the IRS. The move comes despite President Joe Biden's request for an over $100 billion combined aid package for Israel, Ukraine, and border security. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Turning now to a rise of anti-Semitism here in the United States, the Biden administration and local governments are now taking concrete steps to fight hatred and attacks. And today's Arian Pastar has more on that and an incident at a New York University over the weekend. That threat's rising, Poppy, no question about it. I mean, in 2022, there were more anti-Semitic events in this country uh, than there had been since 1979. National Security Council advisor John Kirby on Monday speaking on the rise of anti-Semitism in the U.S. Kirby explains what the Biden administration is doing to fight that trend. We're working very closely at a federal level with state and local authorities to be able to better identify threats uh, to the Jewish community and disrupt them before they can, they can, uh, they can actually uh, take action. This comes as the Biden administration on Monday set up a plan to fight anti-Semitism on college campuses. We can't stand by and stand silent in the face of hate. Cybersecurity experts with Homeland Security are reportedly set to work with schools to combat anti-Semitic content online. No one should be afraid to walk from their dorm or their dining hall to a classroom. New York Governor Kathy Hochul on Monday visiting Cornell University. This after anti-Semitic threats were posted on a discussion board related to Cornell. The graphic threats reportedly showed murder, sexual violence and comparisons to animals. We will not tolerate threats or hatred or anti-Semitism. She announced the state will ramp up security on campuses across New York. The FBI and local investigators are now reportedly looking into the threats as well. Meanwhile, students at Columbia University in New York City rallying against anti-Semitism. My Jewish sisters and brothers and I are on the receiving end of death threats from our peers. The students demand the university do more to tackle hatred, hoping that the current rise in anti-Semitism comes to an end. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. A Las Vegas man faces federal charges of threatening a public official. He allegedly threatened to kidnap or murder Jewish Senator Jackie Rosen from Nevada. According to CNN, John Anthony Miller left voicemails at Rosen's office containing anti-Semitic threats and referenced the Israel-Hamas conflict. A spokesman said Senator Rosen trusts the U.S. Attorney's Office and federal law enforcement to handle this matter. Miller's hearing for the charge is scheduled for November 13th. It's absolutely concerning the amount of, well, I can only repeat myself, but, you know, and according to uh, Sharice Trump, um, the, the expert that we had um, from Speech First, she, um, she was telling us that apparently this has been happening for a while now as well. So I, I've read numbers that, you know, even in 2022, it was rising exponentially. So it seems like it just came, to, uh, it has come to a boiling point. These are alarming trends. And of course you see that hateful rhetoric running alongside with the terrorist acts committed against Israel. So right. it's um, very definitely serious. Stay with us here, 82,000 pages of private email correspondence under a pseudonym. We have the details on the National Archives' quiet admission on President Biden. 
A trial on whether former President Trump should be taken off the ballot over allegedly inciting an insurrection, but he's never been convicted of that. Will that matter? A legal analyst weighs in. Good to have you back. In Colorado, a trial to determine whether or not former President Trump will remain on the state's ballot. But some call the plaintiff's case a big lie. Here's NTD's Arlene Richards with more. As you know, Six Republicans don't want former President Trump on the Colorado ballot. They filed a lawsuit in a state court accusing him of inciting an insurrection. They're asking the judge to order his removal from the ballot. Trump tried to get out of the case, but Judge Sarah Wallace said the state's law doesn't limit her from considering federal election matters. In recent months, liberal groups across the country have been drumming up support for barring Trump from seeking office. They're relying on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Attorney James Bopp Jr. explained the law. Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is called the Disqualification Clause. And what it does is that if someone has taken an oath to defend the Constitution of the United States and then engages in insurrection, that's the, the exact wording, engages in insurrection, uh, then that person is disqualified from taking the oath of office again. Colorado's election law deals with certain criteria such as age, citizenship, and residency. Bob says there are two reasons the 14th Amendment insurrection clause isn't applicable here. First is they're talking about qualifications, not disqualifications. And this uh, Section 3 is a disqualifier, not a qualifi qualification. And the uh, Arizona Attorney uh, Supreme Court uh, expressly ruled that their statute about qualifications did not include a disqualification as in Section 3. The second thing is, is more substantive, and that is uh, a person must be, quote, qualified, end of quote, on or before the date of the term the office begins. So it's a assume office qualification statute. In other words, even if Trump should be disqualified, he said under Section 3, it can't be decided until Congress meets to certify the election, and then it has to be by a two-thirds vote. The plaintiff sued the Secretary of State, Democrat Jenna Griswold, but she's not taking a position on the case. Her attorney said she believes Trump is significantly responsible for an insurrection. Bob said to say insurrection is a lie. And, of course, it, the, the lie here is that there was an insurrection on January 6th. And the second lie was that Trump uh, engaged in it. In other words, committed a direct overt act. Plaintiff's case hinges on this judge determining that Trump incited an insurrection. The judge dismissed a defense under the First Amendment. She allowed the plaintiffs to admit 408 out of 411 findings from the January 6th committee report and most of the plaintiff's witnesses have some connection to the January 6th incident. Bob said Trump is not receiving any due process, there are no rules of evidence, and he can't defend himself upon any constitutional right. And now we're bringing in Paul Kaminar, the lead counsel at the National Legal and Policy Center, to talk about Trump's ballot disqualification case in Colorado. 
Paul, thanks for coming on the show today. No court ever convicted Trump of an insurrection, so how can he be taken off the ballot for having allegedly engaged in one? Well, that's a very good question. And uh, in fact, he hasn't even been charged with insurrection by Jack Smith here in the District of Columbia. Uh, so he hasn't been charged with it. And uh, even, you know, in terms of, of the, the law itself, it says that you're disqualified from holding office if you engage in insurrection. It doesn't say that you can't be on the ballot. And that's what this is all about, is whether or not it could be on the ballot. Moreover, really? uh, go ahead. Yeah, really interesting intricacies. Go on. No, I was going to say, and also the, the, the uh, Section 3 uh, actually says that it applies to members of Congress, the Senate, president electors, or vice president electors, and officers of the United States. So the people filing the suit says, aha, President Trump is or was an officer of the United States. But the Supreme Court has long ruled that officers of the United States are those who are appointed to those offices, not elected. And so, you know, if, if, if the framers of the 14th Amendment wanted to include the president, they talked about members of Congress, the Senate, president electors, they, they left out president. So it doesn't apply to him. And then finally, how are you going to decide whether engaged in insurrection uh, or rebellion? Uh, Congress passed a law about that, and and uh, a couple Proud Boys were convicted. Uh, and so you have to have a trial in a, a federal court to see whether he's convicted or not. So th this is really a Hail Mary pass by those who are trying to keep Trump off the ballot. And, and this suit will not fly uh, uh, once it's finished or even goes to the Supreme Court. So I don't see this uh, happening at all. Well, Paul, you're right. In Section 3, there is no mention of the word president itself. I want to read to you what most people know Trump said on January 6th. Quote, I know that everyone here will soon be marching over to the Capitol building to peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard. Trump attorney is actually calling out this word peace in his defense several times there. Do you think that that defense is going to be enough or do we expect more? Oh, you don't even need that defense. Like I said, there's other things that prohibit this law from being applied. Uh, but, uh, you know, you're right that in terms of uh, the charging uh, Trump with insurrection or rebellion uh, because of January 6th, he did say for everybody to march up peacefully. And notably, Jack Smith, and in the indictment against Trump for, quote unquote, stealing the election, uh, he quoted uh, Trump at the rally, and he left out those words of, I want you to march peacefully and patriotically. Uh, so, yeah, that, that, that's clearly a defense. Uh, the First Amendment's the defense. And these other cases that are going in D.C. and Georgia uh, and so forth. So uh, this case is really not going anywhere. It's just a, a sideshow. Uh, and, uh, uh, again, if, if any court rules against Trump, it will certainly go quickly to the Supreme Court, and I expect the Supreme Court will reverse any lower court decision on this. Right, and in this scenario that something does happen here and it does make a difference, is there going to be any impact to the election? I mean, Trump lost Colorado by over 14%. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, each state is important, uh, and therefore, uh, whether it's Colorado or, or other states uh, where it's close elections, it's very important that, that he uh, 
uh, beyond the ballot in those states. So that's why if there's any ruling against uh, Trump and, uh, and, and then in Colorado, by the way, uh, that ruling will come out in a couple of weeks. There's going to be closing arguments on November 15th. And the judge in that case said uh, she will rule two days later. So we will know before Thanksgiving whether that is going to work. Keep in mind, they tried the same trick against Marjorie Taylor Greene in Georgia, saying that she can't hold office because she was engaged in rebellion on January 6th. And the court threw that out. So uh, at this point, uh, there uh, one uh, zip on, on going after those who were involved in January 6th. Right, that 14th Amendment being invoked. Paul, just in one sentence, is it Congress that enforces the 14th Amendment or is it a district court? Well, initially, it would be in these cases, uh, either district court or even state court. The federal courts, are, it could be in both courts because they decide state election law. Uh, but Congress uh, ultimately passes uh, the law implementing uh, uh, Section 3, and they did so. They have a statute on insurrection and sedition. Uh, and therefore, Congress already has a law. You can't just self-execute this law saying, oh, it's self-executing, and it could be that. So Congress really has a role here. And they also can uh, also remove the disqualification by two-thirds of a vote if, in fact, they find Trump is disqualified. That's right. Paul Kaminar, lead counsel at the National Legal and Policy Center. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Glad to be here. The National Archives just made a quiet admission about President Biden's private email accounts. The agency says it found 82,000 email pages from three of Biden's pseudonym accounts during his time as vice president in the Obama administration. The disclosure was made under pressure from a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the status report. A joint status report filed in a federal court Monday says NARA identified some 82,000 pages of Biden's pseudonym emails over an eight-year period. The lawsuit against the National Archives was filed by the nonprofit Southeastern Legal Foundation in June last year. It demanded copies of all correspondence from three separate email accounts purportedly used by Biden during his time as VP. The three pseudonym email accounts are Robert L. Peters, Robin Ware, and J.R.B. Ware. NARA says its search found a high volume of potentially responsive documents and is working to produce non-exempt portions on a monthly rolling basis. Monday's status report says the parties plan to discuss ways to narrow the request to speed things up and agree on a rate of processing. It also states both parties agree any legal issues that come up can be decided at a summary judgment, but not until further talks take place. It's possible Biden could have submitted the private emails to NARA given the large number in the agency's possession. Officials like a vice president are obligated to keep government-related emails from private accounts under the Federal Records Act. Biden's total far surpasses a State Department report on former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton's roughly 52,000 private emails made public under a FOIA request, some of which were recovered after being deleted. The parties are asking the court to issue an order for a joint status report by December 8th, documenting NARA's rates of processing and production and proposals for the next steps in the case. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Coming up, several hundred Americans are believed to be in Gaza and are trying to flee. Is the U.S. doing enough to help them return safely? A retired naval officer gives us his insight when we come back.
Good to have you back. As Israel expands ground operations into Gaza, defense forces say they remain vigilant in defending the borders. Israel's army released footage of airstrikes today, which it says were against Hezbollah targets in Lebanon. The IDF says its jet hit terror infrastructure, including weapons, posts and sites used by the Lebanese terrorist group. Israel is warning Lebanon against Hezbollah joining the fray. It says the country has nothing to gain by helping terrorists in Gaza. The IDF says strikes are being carried out all through the Gaza Strip as it hunts for Hamas commanders, with a primary focus on northern Gaza where Hamas is centered. An IDF spokesman said humanitarian aid into southern Gaza will be ramped up in the coming days and that around 800,000 Palestinians have listened to Israel's evacuation order and moved south. Israel's military continues to sound the alarm on Shifa Hospital, the largest hospital in Gaza City, and the terrorist base of operations it says is built underneath it. It condemned putting civilians at risk and says it needs to be stopped before it's too late. Meanwhile, doctors and forensic experts in Israel are working around the clock to try and identify victims killed on October 7th. Hundreds of unidentified bodies remain, many mutilated and in fragments. Workers say it's a haunting task because of the evidence of torture. An Israeli-German woman kidnapped by Hamas from a music festival has been declared dead by the Israeli government. Videos of Shani Lok went viral and symbolized for many, the horrors of the terrorist attacks. Please note this report contains content that some may find disturbing. Here's the story. The Israeli government announced Monday on X that a missing Israeli woman was pronounced dead. The statement read, quote, We are devastated to share that the body of 23-year-old German-Israeli Shani Luke was found and identified. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz commented on the victim, who had dual German-Israeli citizenship. For me, for me, this news is something that is terrible. A human being has been brutally murdered, and it shows the barbarity behind the Hamas attack. But it is terrible, and it shows the mindset of the perpetrators. There's no justification, and this is something that we as human beings can only deplore. Shani Luke's skull was found and identified through DNA testing. Israeli President Isaac Herzog told the German newspaper Bild, quote, this means that these barbaric, sadistic animals simply chopped off her head as they attacked, tortured, and killed Israelis. It is a great tragedy, and I extend my deepest condolences to her family. Her mother is struggling to understand the barbarity of what her daughter had to suffer. So in, in this time, really, you know, a whole world breaks down. You don't understand. You, you don't get it. You said she was on a festival. What, what happened? Why, why do people behave like this, like, like human, uh, like animals? I don't know. I really have no, no explanation for this. But. It's not clear exactly what happened to Shani Luke. Authorities haven't released full details to the public. The family initially believed she was injured but alive. Now they believe she was killed on October 7th when she was kidnapped from an outdoor music festival she was attending. Her mother, Ricarda Luke, did hold on to one bit of comfort, telling media at least she didn't suffer. To discuss the quest to get Americans out of Gaza and back home, we're bringing in retired lieutenant commander at the Office of Naval Intelligence, Stephen Rogers. Lieutenant Rogers, thank you for your time this morning. Oh, you're welcome. Is the United States doing enough to get Americans out of Gaza? 
Well, at this point we are, uh, you know, the objective is to get them out alive. But one thing must be understood, and I know it's very difficult for people who have never been in war or in the military to understand. We're dealing with terrorists. We're dealing with animals. They have no regard for any human life. So the only way we're going to be able to get them out, uh, at least uh, in, in the, probably uh, in the future, if negotiations don't work, is to use as much military might as we can. These terrorists must be decapitated. They must be destroyed. So when you say military might, do you anticipate an actual U.S. intervention in the Middle East? I do. Uh, and uh, sadly to say, uh, it's going to come to that because we don't forget we have Iran involved, you have Russia involved, you have China involved, you have a new axis of evil, uh, unlike anything we've ever seen before. And uh, the United States of America has the military might to end this by helping the Israelis, but sooner or later we're going to get involved. These Americans, they want to flee, but is Hamas preventing them from leaving? Well, not only do the Americans want to flee and Hamas is preventing them from fleeing, but they're preventing their own people, the Palestinian people, from fleeing. Uh, again, no, no regard for any human life. They've enslaved their people, they've harmed their people, and now they're using their people as well as the hostages as human shields. So what should be done about this? Complete and total annihilation of Hamas of Hezbollah, of these terrorist groups. And by the way, we might as well add Iran to the list. They've been a sponsor of terrorism for as long as I've been living. Uh, they have killed Americans. They have killed people from different countries around the world. Well, it's time to kill them. So how does that work, getting Americans out of Gaza? There's a couple crossings. There, obviously, there's been a lot of controversy around whether or not those are open. Well, look, to begin with, uh, uh, you know, you're going to use your military might, you're going to use strategy and tactics. Remember shock and awe in Iraq? Well, that's what's going to have to be done here. And again, uh, it must be uh, emphasized that the Israeli government, as well as the United States government, uh, we do everything we can to protect innocent people, to protect civilians. But unfortunately, we have a terrorist uh, organization that has decided to use those civilians as part of their war machine to protect themselves. Do you anticipate any way for the U.S. to use other Arab nations as a way to broker some negotiations to get these Americans out? I believe that's going on as we speak. There are some Arab nations that are probably involved behind the scenes uh, doing a lot of talking. But I've got to tell you, at this point, uh, uh, it's going to be very tough to negotiate with animals that decide that uh, they could just go anywhere on the face of the earth, let alone Israel, and torture, maim, kill, and behead people and, and, and kill babies. Let's look at history here. Are there any situations like this that have happened before where Americans are in a war zone? Yes, uh, as recently as Afghanistan, uh, we've had Iraq. We do have Americans in Africa where there is fighting uh, what you could say is a war zone with terrorists. So this is nothing new uh, the, uh, with regard to Americans being in war zones. What is new is the fact that you have a terrorist group now using these Americans uh, as leverage to negotiate in the future or as human shields to protect themselves. So what happened in those other cases? Well, you know, when you're fighting a, uh, an enemy uh, that is sponsored by a country, you could pretty much go in and do a lot of negotiation. Uh, in some of those cases, it took uh, special forces to go in and take people out, but never at the scale as we're seeing right now. The difference is going to be uh, the military might that the United States has in the region is showing what may happen, which means a wider regional war that nobody wants, but my guess it may come to that. Of course, it's very difficult to predict these kinds of things in advance, but do you think that this will cause the United States to be more vigilant about issuing warnings for Americans not to go to places where a situation like this may arise? 
Well, yeah, I think we uh, have to be vigilant more so with regard to terrorism uh, in total. Uh, I'm really concerned about what's being prepared to do damage here. Uh, don't forget, we have an open border, thousands of people who've crossed that border, young men, if you will, that we can't find. So I know a lot of focus has been on the Mideast, but I'm worried about one big thing that could happen here. We could end up focusing on the battlefields right here on the streets of America if we're not vigilant and warn Americans right here to wake up. And if you see something, you better darn say something. Lieutenant Rogers, these are five to 600 Americans that are within the confines of Gaza. And obviously Israel has somewhat of a blockade around there. So do you think there needs to be dialogue between the United States and Israel to open that up? Well, there has been, uh, and it's ongoing, but we've got to be very careful. When you open up a, a, a border, if you will, like Gaza, you may be opening up uh, the entrance of more terrorists. It's a very difficult situation that the Israelis is in. But I could tell you, they're doing everything they can, that is the Israeli government, to get food, water, and aid into the area to help the civilians that are trapped there. It's very great hearing your analysis. Retired Lieutenant Commander Stephen Rogers at the Office of Naval Intelligence, thank you. Well, thank you very much. A Hamas leader says responsibility for the safety of civilians in Gaza lies with Israel and the UN. That was in response to a reporter's question about why no bomb shelters were constructed to protect civilians despite building an extensive tunnel network. Watch. Everybody knows that 75% of the people in the Gaza Strip are refugees, and it is the responsibility of the United Nations to protect them. Activists in Toronto occupied the office of Canada's Deputy Prime Minister, Christia Freeland, yesterday. They demanded a ceasefire in Gaza. Footage shows protesters holding a play, play, placard reading, Stop Genocide Now, and chanting Free Palestine in Freeland's office. Protesters in support of Palestinians also gathered on the streets, holding banners, signing, and chanting. The protesters demanded an end to what they called Canadian complicity with Israel and a military embargo and economic sanctions on Israel. Hamas terrorists invaded Israel on October 7th. They slaughtered more than 1,400 people, mostly civilians, and took over 200 hostages. Prime Minister Netanyahu rejected calls for a ceasefire yesterday. He says Israel will continue its war against Hamas until victory. Japan announced today a fresh set of sanctions on parties connected to the terrorist group Hamas. The sanctions consist of freezing the assets of individuals and a company that have helped fund Hamas. They're in line with new sanctions announced by the United States earlier this month. It is the first set of sanctions Japan has imposed on Hamas since its deadly rampage on October 7th that killed over 1,400 people. Individuals, including Hamas operatives, were newly added to the list of people and organizations deemed as terrorists by Japan. Coming up, Canada bans two more popular apps from government devices. Find out why officials blocked WeChat and Kaspersky antivirus for download. Important testimony by Google CEO in the U.S. versus Google antitrust trial. Business correspondent Don Ma has the details when we return. We have a special report exposing Chinese Communist Party censorship in the free world. How a New York-based arts group has faced oppression in an American-allied country for almost two decades when we come back.
Good to have you back. Canada has banned China-owned WeChat on government devices. It's also barred Russian-owned Kaspersky antivirus. Government officials cited an unacceptable level of risk to privacy and security in their announcement yesterday. Canadian officials say the move keeps government networks and data secure and protected, matching the approach of international partners. The country's Treasury Board says it has no evidence of government information being compromised, only that the app's collection methods give considerable access to Avice's contents. Kapersky said it was surprised and disappointed by the move and that it wasn't given the chance to address concerns. The Russian firm says no evidence or due process was provided to justify the action. The company claims it was done in response to the geopolitical climate instead of an evaluation of its integrity. The two apps are now blocked for downloads on all government-issued devices. Canada banned China-owned TikTok in February over similar concerns. And Apple unveiled a slew of new products late last night in a special event. Here live to tell us more about this is Entity Business host Don Ma. Good morning, Don. Good morning, Kevin. Can you give us some highlights of the products shown at the event? Sure. Uh, actually, the star of the event was all about uh, the new Apple Silicon chip, and it's called the M3. It's the third generation of Apple's M Silicon chips. Uh, the chip is based on a first ever three nanometer technology. Uh, this is the smallest design that Apple's Macs have ever used. And according to Apple, the three nanometer chip creates transistors that are so small, you can fit two million of them in the cross section of a human hair. Uh, there's three versions of the chip. It's the M3, M3 Pro, and M3 Max, and each is more powerful than the last. Uh, this new generation of chips, it's gonna be faster and more powerful than the previous generation of chips. Uh, so we're talking about uh, faster GPU and, uh, and CPU performance here. Incredible. Now, which computers will get those new M3 chips? Right. Uh, so Apple unveiled three products that's going to be shipped with the new three nanometer chips. They're the MacBook Pro 14-inch, uh, the MacBook Pro 16-inch and the 24-inch iMac. And during the event, Apple said uh, the laptops could actually get up to 22 hours of battery life. Um, the screens are brighter as well, and you know, for anyone who likes darker MacBooks, there's actually a new color uh, for those who purchases a new MacBook with the M3 Pro and M3 Max configurations. And this new color is called the Space Black. It's just a darker uh, gray. And then uh, as for pricing, the base model of the MacBook Pro is going to be uh, a bit cheaper, actually. It's going to be $400 less, uh, starting at $1599. 24-inch iMac is also getting M3, it's advertised as two times faster than M1, starts at $12.99. Uh, Pre-orders actually started yesterday. That's really interesting, Don. Yeah, and Apple is just keeping us consumers on our toes here. What do you think? Something for Black Friday? Maybe. I mean, for those who are on Intel-based MacBooks, I think it's a worthwhile upgrade. Uh, but Perhaps for those on M2, that's the second generation, maybe they have to consider whether it's worthwhile. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it depends on the person. Excellent. Well, you got anything else for us, Don? Sure. Uh, Google CEO Sundar Pichai uh, testified yesterday, and he gave what may be key testimony in the landmark Google versus the U.S. antitrust lawsuit. Pichai acknowledged yesterday that being the default search engine was important in keeping people tethered to Google products. 
Uh, the federal case revolves around whether Google's dominance is illegal. The, the company uses agreements with companies like Apple to uh, keep their search engines as the default one on the phone and on computers. And Google says, you know, if people don't like uh, Google search as the default, they can simply switch to another. So that, that was pretty important yesterday, but other than those, uh, that's all from me. Well, thank you so much for keeping us updated here. Thank you, Don Ma, host of NTD Business. Yeah, pleasure as always. And the New York-based Shen Yun Performing Arts entertains and moves audiences around the world, but it often faces opposition from the Chinese Communist Party, even in countries allied to the U.S. NTD dives into the history of the CCP's interference with the performing arts company and the implications it has on the free world. The long arm of Chinese censorship reaching a key U.S. ally, South Korea. Major theaters in Seoul now declining to rent their venues to Shen Yun, an American performing arts company whose dance and music portrayed China before communism. Epoch Times investigations show that a Chinese embassy in Korea has for years been threatening Korean theaters with economic and political retaliation if they let Shen Yun perform. In 2016, KBS Hall, owned by Korea's national broadcaster, canceled a contract with Shen Yun after the Chinese embassy sent them a letter warning it will be detrimental to the relationship between Korea and China if the theater proceeded with Shen Yun performances. A Korean court ruling in this case explicitly pointed to potential economic retaliation from Beijing, stating that if KBS cannot export its broadcasting contents to China, it may face huge losses. But Korea is not the only democratic country in which the CCP is using its political and economic leverage to censor free art. Chinese embassies have sent similar letters in trying to stop Shen Yun from performing to theaters and elected officials in the US, Canada, Europe and Australia. In one case in Spain, the Chinese ambassador there admitted on tape that he personally warned a Madrid theater that it would lose the Chinese market if they didn't cancel Shen Yun. But why would a powerful regime use all kinds of tactics to interfere with a classical Chinese dance show? Xing Yun describes its mission as to revive China's five-millennial-old traditional culture, which has been largely destroyed under decades of communist rule. The group's performers also practice Falun Gong, a meditation practice whose practitioners are persecuted by the Chinese regime. Some company members have fled religious persecution themselves or have family members still imprisoned in China. Alongside dances portraying scenes from imperial dynasties and literary classics, some of the show's pieces also depict the story of what Falun Gong practitioners are facing in China today or attacks on Buddhist temples during the Cultural Revolution. The show's perspectives on Chinese culture, history, and spirituality have put it on the CCP's target list. But it's also these values that have drawn millions of audience members from around the world. Xing Yun now tours in nearly 200 cities and 20 countries every year. While the CCP's campaigns to censor the show have failed in most countries, they are making headway in Korea.
How Korea and the U.S. act on it could decide if China can exert control over more key allies, all at a crossroads, bowing to CCP pressure or upholding values shared by the free world. Yeah, that's a very important point. Um, but listen, I think I remember from years ago they had their tires slashed. I think other countries as well. Berlin, they were um, they were um, intimidated like this as well, although they didn't give into it. Right. Yeah, that's important context here. And when you see the CCP using its economic might to quash dissenting voices, we'll have to see if Korea is able to stand up to that. That's right. And I mean, everybody, we've spoken to a lot of people that speak out against the CCP that um, experience similar tactic, well, intimidation tactics. And I guess NTD and Epic Times, the sister media, we're not really, um, we're, we're familiar with that as well to an extent, right? So. Yes. So we're moving on here. A 92-year-old man survives the October 7th Hamas terrorist attack after having escaped the horrors of the Holocaust 83 years before. Hear his story. The founder of a famous human rights organization shares her thoughts on the Israel-Hamas conflict. Hear more about what she calls a struggle between good and evil. Good to have you back, and here is a moving story. At the age of eight, his family fled rampant anti-Semitism in Poland just before the Nazi invasion. Then on October 7th, 83 years later, his life was endangered again, this time by Hamas, also looking to kill Jews. During the terrorist attack, 92-year-old Dov Golubovic kept close to his phone. He closely monitored a group messaging system used by a neighboring kibbutz to call in warnings. Dove was alone in his home safe room, locked in the small concrete room for 10 hours, reminiscent of what happened to Jews 83 years ago. During World War II, Dove and his family stayed safe in Australia, reading of Hitler's horrors as they spread across front pages. Eventually, Dov joined a Zionist youth movement where he met his wife, Lily. In 1955, they moved to Israel where they built a family. This is where his children and grandchildren live. He says leaving his home is not an option this time. A daughter of Holocaust survivors and founder of a distinguished human rights foundation is speaking out on the Israel-Hamas conflict. Dr. Katrina Lantos spoke with the host of America's Hope, Kelly Wright, here are some highlights from that interview. The Lantos Foundation is an influential voice for human rights. Its founder, Dr. Katrina Lantos-Sweat, teaches human rights and foreign policy at Tufts University and has served in various UN and US groups which advocate religious freedom and human rights. She offers context to the Israeli-Hamas conflict. She says the conflict requires us to make a choice. But I think we need to see these events in a broader context. This really is a civilizational struggle. It's a civilizational struggle between good and evil, between the forces of democracy and human rights versus the forces of terror, brutality, and authoritarianism. It truly is a time of choosing. Both of her parents, who survived the Hungarian Holocaust, taught her lessons about humanity. Uh, both my sister and I really learned from my parents two lessons, two sides of the coin, the depths of depravity 
which uh, human beings are capable of inflicting on each other and the heights of humanity to which they can rise. Dr. Lanto says those who support terrorists and their acts have lost something important. But as it relates to the thousands of college students, to the handful of members of Congress, um, their, their efforts to excuse, to contextualize, to justify the atrocities committed by Hamas will redound to their shame for the rest of their lives. It shows to me that they have utterly lost their moral compass, utterly lost their moral compass. Dr. Lantos says we should all strive for peace and that politicians have a critical role to play at this time in human history. But I think at this time and in a moment like this, we have to distinguish or be able to distinguish between the moral duty each of us has individually to be peacemakers and to seek peace in our communities, within our families and in the world as, as distinct from the duty of political leaders who have the responsibility to confront evil. She makes a great point with her message for peace. Yeah, wise words. And here is the part where we kick off the second part of the broadcast. President Biden reigns in the power of AI with his emergency federal powers. We speak to an expert about the details of the executive order. Humanitarian aid, civilian casualties fighting Hamas. We have the latest on the U.S. response to Israel's war with the terror organization. Democrats want to subpoena wealthy cons conservative donors as they push for a code of conduct targeting Supreme Court justices. Ivanka Trump is set to take the stand and testify next week in her father's civil fraud case in New York. This after she postponed her original court date on November 3rd. Welcome back. It's good to have you here. And to those of you just joining us, good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning for me as well. I'm Evelyn Lee. Today's Tuesday, October 31st. And again, let's get right into our top stories. President Biden turning to emergency federal powers to rein in the risk of AI. His administration vows to move faster than the technology itself. And today's Iris Tao has more from the White House. President Biden has invoked the Korean War era Defense Production Act in signing an executive order today that would mandate major AI companies to inform the government when they're developing AI systems that could pose risks to our national security, public health or economic security. It also asked them to share the results of all safety tests of their AI systems before releasing them to the public. President Biden says AI must be governed. One thing is clear. To realize the promise of AI and avoid the risk, we need to govern this technology and must be governed. The executive order would also ask the Commerce Department to develop standard watermarking to label AI-generated content. And President Biden says that's to help the public tell what's real from what's not. Deepfakes use AI-generated audio and video to smear reputations, speak for spreads fake news. I've watched one of me on a couple of times. <laughs> I said, when the hell did I say that? 
Before today's announcement, the White House did get 15 major AI companies such as Meta, Google and Microsoft to agree to voluntarily allow for outside testing of their AI systems. But now it's a mandate for them to do so and more actions could also come from Congress. Meanwhile, on the economy, President Biden today held the latest tentative deal reached between United Auto Workers and the big three automakers and calling it a historic agreement that showed worker power. Reporting from the White House, Aris Tao, NTD News. And we want to hear more on the AI executive order. To dig deeper, we're bringing in an AI expert, Phil Siegel. He's also a founder of an AI company called Captors. Good morning, Phil. Uh, good to see you. So first, um, what is your? what do you think uh, will the impact be um, from those AI orders on the tech and AI industry? Yeah, good, good question. You know, the executive order is very wide ranging, sweeping, almost a position paper uh, for the government on artificial intelligence. You know, the downside here is it's an exec executive order. So some of these things will not really be able to be enforced um, without Congress's help. Uh, and some will, will probably be done at the state level as well. But it's a very good start to get a framework in place um, so that people can start following uh, the lead of what needs to get done. There are some, there's, there's some things that are uh, in great detail, things that are, you know, very uh, still high level that need to be worked through. So just based on the executive order itself, would that have any um, practical implications already? Let's say, um, as an example for your company, Captors, would that mean any changes on a practical level um, on how you ensure the safety of your product? Yeah, so our products are really uh, built, built around, uh, we're not using artificial intelligence as a platform, it's much more uh, as an application to, to help society prepare for the, some of the very disasters that um, this executive order are trying to prepare for. So it probably won't change what we do day to day. Uh, it may change what some of the platform companies like OpenAI, uh, Google, and so forth do. Uh, it places a lot of responsibilities on them um, and, uh, and, you know, starts to engage them in the safety end of what they are building. So you just mentioned uh, some concerns in terms of the, in the enforcement here. So where does Congress, do you think, have to come in and really, what do they have to do to really make this st stick, so to speak? Yeah, so if you tear apart the executive order, there's so many different pieces. Some are um, very clearly pointed uh, at the military and some of the things that they're doing uh, and, are, and are more messaging and, and things that the federal government can pretty much do on their own. Um, there are other things around uh, business and commerce, um, around worker protection, uh, and even policy on how to use AI to protect jobs and so forth that are going to require Congress. Um, and frankly, we'll probably have a lot of businesses um, uh, fighting some of these uh, some of these notions. It, it, you know, on the downside, it, it's a it's a pretty big industrial policy paper as well. So it's it's got a lot of things in there, both from a business, military, policy, technology, right. and so forth. Yeah. So on a broader level, um, we just heard that the administration vows to move faster than the technology itself. Is that possible? No, it's not possible. Um, but having a framework. Uh, in place uh, that can stay uh, next to the technology development and give and make sure that 
when people are pushing forward um, with new applications, new technologies is possible, um, but staying ahead of all of the developments and so forth is, is um, it, it's not really uh, possible. Gotcha, well, let's keep an eye out for what will happen next here. Thank you so much, Phil Ziegel, I appreciate it. Thank you. And National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said Monday that the U.S. is seeking to boost the delivery of humanitarian aid to the Gaza Strip. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on that and the latest on the U.S. response to the war in Israel. NSC spokesman John Kirby says that although aid has gone up, the volume needs to be increased significantly. Kirby also discussed civilian casualties in Gaza, acknowledging there have been thousands of them. But he says Israel is striving to avoid them. But unlike Putin in Ukraine, and unlike what Hamas did on October 7th, killing civilians is not a war aim of the Israeli Defense Forces. Their war aim is to go after Hamas terrorists. Uh, terrorists, I might add, terrorists, I might add, that are using innocent Palestinians as human shields. Kirby also discussed Israel's campaign to uproot the Hamas terror group. You can decapitate a terrorist organization. You can decimate their capabilities. You can render them a lot less effective. Kirby says such moves may not remove the ideology that allows the terror organization to recruit and get funding. But look at ISIS right now. It's a shadow of itself. Remember, they were storming across Iraq and Syria with this big caliphate that they wanted to govern. Back to Gaza aid, State Department spokesman Matthew Miller said 45 trucks carrying food, water and other humanitarian aid moved through the Rafah crossing into the enclave on Sunday. That's the highest single-day shipment to date. Miller says the U.S. is also making progress on ensuring the delivery of fuel supplies. I should note that even as we work to provide fuel for these essential humanitarian services, Hamas continues to maintain extensive fuel reserves. Rather than provide that fuel to hospitals or aid workers or for other civilian needs, however, it continues to hoard it for the benefit of its fighters and to carry out its terrorist attacks against Israel. On hostages, Miller says the U.S. will continue to work at the highest levels to secure the release of every hostage held by Hamas and the safe passage of those American citizens in Gaza who want to leave. Miller also commented on efforts to evacuate Americans stranded in Israel saying the last planned charter flight will leave Tuesday from Tel Aviv. Purely a demand issue. We had a charter flight leave yesterday that had five people on it. Uh, we have consistently seen the demand for our charter flights go down. The U.S. government began chartering flights from Tel Aviv to Athens on October 13th to help Americans depart Israel amid the ongoing conflict in the region. Turning to funding, House Republicans on Monday introduced a plan to provide over $14 billion in aid to Israel by cutting funding for the IRS. The move comes despite President Joe Biden's request for an over $100 billion combined aid package for Israel, Ukraine, and border security. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Biden administration officials met with American Jewish leaders on Monday. They discussed steps to counter the surge of anti-Jewish incidents at universities. Here's White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. There's no place for hate in America, and we condemn any anti-Semitic threat or incident in the strongest, in the strongest terms. We're also closely monitoring and concerned 
by the reports of anti-Semitic threats at Cornell University. To the students at Cornell and on campuses across the country, we're tracking these threats closely. We're thinking of you. Over the weekend, threats were posted online to Jewish students and the Center of Jewish Living at Cornell University in New York. The school's student newspaper said the online messages included threats to shoot Jewish students and urged others to harm Jews as well. The Anti-Defamation League last week reported a nearly 400% spike in U.S. anti-Semitic incidents overall since the Hamas terror attack on Israel. Just ahead, Senate Democrats are pushing for a Supreme Court Justice Ethics Code and will vote to subpoena wealthy conservative donors. Important testimony by Google's CEO in the U.S. versus Google antitrust trial. The Galapagos Islands draw tourists from around the world. Find out how the archipelago's diverse array of wildlife and landscapes offer something for everyone. Good to have you back. Senate Judiciary Committee Democrats said yesterday they plan to schedule a vote to authorize subpoenas in their investigation into ethics reform at the Supreme Court. The investigation comes after a series of stories over the last several months suggested some justices, especially Clarence Thomas, have skirted ethics rules. Committee Chair Dick Durbin said the subpoenas would target Harlan Crow and Robin Arkley, the second wealthy conservative donors, and Leonard Leo, a longtime conservative activist. The three have all been linked to Thomas and others in recent news stories. Durbin says they all declined to fully engage with the committee on a voluntary basis during its inquiry. A Democratic aide says the committee will likely vote on the subpoenas on November 9th. The news marks an escalation of the Senate's investigation. It comes as Democrats are pushing regulations that would require the justices to adopt a code of conduct directed specifically at the high court. It is likely to trigger new separation of powers concerns between the branches of government. A trial in Colorado will determine whether or not former President Trump will remain on the state's ballot. Earlier, I spoke with Paul Kaminar, the lead counsel at the National Legal and Policy Center, to discuss the legitimacy of the case and its significance. No court ever convicted Trump of an insurrection, so how can he be taken off the ballot for having allegedly engaged in one? Well, that's a very good question. And uh, in fact, he hasn't even been charged with insurrection by Jack Smith here in the District of Columbia. Uh, so he hasn't been charged with it. And uh, even, you know, in terms of, of the, the law itself, it says that you're disqualified from holding office if you engage in insurrection. It doesn't say that you can't be on the ballot. And that's what this is all about, is whether or not it could be on the ballot. Uh, Section 3 uh, actually says that it applies to members of Congress, the Senate, president-electors, or vice president-electors, and officers of the United States. So the people filing the suit says, aha, President Trump is or was an officer of the United States. But the Supreme Court has long ruled that officers of the United States are those who are appointed to those offices, not elected. And in the scenario that something does happen here and it does make a difference, is there going to be any impact to the election? I mean, Trump lost 
Colorado by over 14 percent. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, each state is important, uh, and therefore, uh, whether it's Colorado or, or other states uh, where it's close elections, it's very important that, that he uh, uh, be on the ballot in those states. So that's why if there's any ruling against uh, Trump, and, uh, and, and then in Colorado, by the way, uh, that ruling will come out in a couple of weeks. There's going to be closing arguments on November 15th, and the judge in that case said uh, she will rule two days later. So we will know before Thanksgiving whether that is going to work. Keep in mind, they tried the same trick against Marjorie Taylor Greene in Georgia, saying that she can't hold office because she was engaged in rebellion on January 6th, and the court threw that out. Ivanka Trump is set to take the stand next week in her father's civil fraud trial in New York. Former President Trump's eldest daughter will appear in court on November 8th. She is scheduled to testify after her father as a final witness called by Letitia James's lawyers. She was initially set to appear on November 3rd, but had to reschedule due to her other commitments. Ivanka Trump had been listed as a co-defendant along with her two brothers, her father, and several other Trump Organization executives in a $250 million fraud lawsuit filed by New York Attorney General Letitia James. In June, Ivanka Trump was dismissed as a co-defendant in the case after an appeals court said claims against her were too old. Ivanka's brothers, Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump, are expected to, te expected to testify later this week. Former President Donald Trump is scheduled to take the stand Monday. Following Ivanka Trump's testimony, the defense will start calling witnesses. Republican presidential hopeful Vivek Ramaswamy says he will be present for the next primary debate. The announcement comes after Ramaswamy publicly questioned whether he would attend and after criticizing Republican National Committee debate rules. Ramaswamy was unhappy with the RNC after it blocked him from debating Republican candidate Chris Christie one-on-one. -on -one. After the last debate, Ramaswamy's campaign asked the RNC to change to change its rules so Republican voters can focus on candidates capable of beating President Biden. Yes, the RNC to limit debate participation to the top four presidential candidates, not including former President Trump. He also requested increased donor thresholds and the selection of a single moderator who can enforce debate rules. The next Republican debate takes place in Miami on November 8th. And a U.S.-led alliance of 40 countries plans, to, plans on signing a pledge to never pay cyber criminals ransomware, according to a White House official. This comes after some recent highly publicized cyber attacks on a couple of Las Vegas casinos. While many countries receive ransomware demands, the U.S. is the victim of nearly half of all cyber attacks worldwide, according to a U.S. national security advisor. Ransomware hackers encrypt and a company's data and demand ransom payments to unlock them. Sensitive client data is also stolen and may be leaked online if demands aren't met. The new alliance will utilize better information sharing about ransom payment accounts. Alliance countries will have a blacklist through the U.S. Treasury Department. Information sharing platforms will be created by Lithuania, Israel and the UAE. Google CEO Sundar Pichai gave what may be key testimony in the landmark Google versus the, anti versus the U.S. antitrust lawsuit. Pichai acknowledged yesterday that being the default search engine was important in keeping people tethered to Google products. The federal case revolves around whether Google's dominance is illegal. 
The government argues Google used agreements with companies like Apple to cut out rival search engines in a way that breaks antitrust law. If Google loses, it may be forced to scrap some of its business practices. The company argues that when people don't like default search engines, they can switch to another. The Galapagos Islands draw tourists from around the world. It's a place where visitors are surrounded by unique wildlife. A South America travel expert describes what makes this archipelago so special. Let's take a closer look. The Galapagos Islands lie in the Pacific Ocean about 600 miles west of Ecuador. South America travel expert Andre Robles has spent 20 years in the industry. He describes what makes the archipelago special. Well, there's several uh, things that make the Galapagos unique, and especially as a destination for travelers. It's one of the only places on Earth where you, you're in a, um, surrounded by wildlife that's unique and that are not afraid of humans. The Galapagos features a range of breathtaking scenery, too. There are bays, highlands, lava fields, and more. Each island has something different to offer. Another thing is, from one island to another, you have different landscapes, even in terms of on the same island. The archipelago's scenic beaches are a huge draw. Sand colors vary from island to island. Some beaches are red, green, or black. Española Island's Gardner Bay is one of the best beaches to watch wildlife. And it's a white sand beach. One of the most, it's considered one of the most beautiful, 10 most beautiful beaches in the world. And the number one beach for wildlife viewing because you have the hood mockingbird, which is endemic there. You have the sea lions in the bay. Other species unique to the archipelago include giant tortoises, blue-footed boobies, and marine iguanas. Robles says the sea lions are friendly. Just don't touch or harass them. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. It's determined. I'm going island hopping. <laughs> okay. Yeah, beautiful scenery there. I like the big turtle they had too. Oh yeah. I remember. I think a friend of mine went there once, and she sent pictures just of all the all these sea lions just lying around in the way, in the middle of where she was walking, and that was amazing. It looks relaxing. Yeah. All right. Um, we have to wrap up our show now, but we'll keep you updated with the latest information. Stay tuned for our news today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern time. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee, and I'm Kevin Hogan.